You could call me the Taylor Swift of racial justice podcasts about Southern Methodist University because I am re-releasing the old stuff. If you're a longtime listener of this podcast, then you've already heard what's coming next. But while the content is the same, the context is different. I uploaded the first episode of Maladjusted in March of 2021, and the information got around. But when I created an infographic sharing the same information I shared in this coming first episode of Maladjusted, it spread differently. People across campus gave it all sorts of feedback, good, bad, everything in between. And I learned that there's a renewed energy and interest in this information. So I'm continuing to experiment with the format of how I talk about race and racism at SMU. But the heart of this project, the core, has always been the podcast. And podcasts are a little bit less accessible than infographics but there's a little bit more room for nuance, testimony, and depth. And it's one of those things where I just have to consider what is the best way to share this information that gets people organizing and interested in long-term sustainable structural change. And that's a question that I want you to ask yourself as you listen either with renewed ears or for the first time to the first episode of Maladjusted. So without further ado, here it is. Okay, I just have to say this. The sound of my voice, the audio quality, it's really different. We live and we learn. Now buckle up, silence your cell phones, it's starting. Before this episode starts, I want to issue a quick content warning. This podcast deals with heavy materials about race, and there's discussion of violence and death in this episode. Listener discretion is advised. Please take care of yourselves, keep your hearts open, and enjoy. This is the interesting part about our nation, about any institution or organization. How you start a thing is sometimes even more important than how you end a thing. Imagine the history of Southern Methodist University. Who do you see? Who is missing? Now imagine the history of racial justice in America. Again, who do you see? And again, who's missing? Do these images overlap at all? It's 2021, and we're in the throes of a national racial reckoning in our country. Last summer, the death of George Floyd by the hands of police captured the public's attention. Then the death of Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, Elijah McCain, the list goes on. An unprecedented and critical mass of Americans took to the streets, declaring that Black Lives Matter. And the Black Lives Matter movement didn't stop at police violence. 
Many people shifted their critical gaze from the streets of Minneapolis, Portland, Louisville, and Kenosha to their own neighborhoods, their own lives, their own systems, and of course, their own schools. SMU is not exempt from this national racial reckoning. This became exceedingly clear in early June when black students took to social media to share their racist campus encounters using the hashtag Black at SMU. Soon after, the Association of Black Students produced a document containing action items for the university. A group of Meadows students raised tens of thousands of dollars on a GoFundMe benefiting their efforts to purchase and distribute Black Lives Matter merchandise. Since the summer, SMU has made a concerted effort to recognize and repair the harm SMU community members of color suffer on our campus. However, we cannot responsibly move forward until identifying the racism that characterizes our past and continues to affect our present. Over the course of the coming hours or days or weeks, however you end up listening, we are going to explore different events, people, and issues throughout SMU's history that will help us understand the present state of campus race relations. SME community members are going to share stories of resistance, moments when they refuse to adjust to racism and discrimination. We will also examine how systemic racism at SMU came to be and how these issues continue to affect community members of color. Okay, so remember when I asked you to picture SMU and racial justice like a couple seconds ago? Well, this episode, we'll discuss a critical moment where traditional images of the university and American racial justice overlapped. When Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave a speech at McFarland Auditorium in 1966. My name is Shara Jayaraja. I'm a human rights fellow at SMU. And this is Maladjusted. Being an SMU Mustang to me means that you adopted the whole spirit of the place and love the campus. Athletics is an important part of the SMU. I plan to contest and watch the There are some things in our nation and the world to which I'm proud to be maladjusted which I hope all men of goodwill will be maladjusted until the good society is realized. Well, okay, record scratch, freeze frame. I bet you're wondering how we got here. To Dr. Martin Luther King addressing a mostly white crowd at McFarlane Auditorium. At this point, there are two black students in SMU's undergraduate population, though when Dr. King was invited, there were zero. That invite was rescinded or delayed, depending on who you ask, but I don't want to talk about that quite yet. Instead, I want to build a foundation of context about our founding that will help us better understand the SMU that Dr. King visited in 1966. Let's go back to the very, very beginning. But first... 
Spoken words are the only tools I have to interact with you. Uh, Last time I checked, podcasts are an audio medium. So to make our time together maximally effective, it's important that we establish some common language. Throughout my journey as a human rights major, I've learned the importance of incisive, accessible language. Think about it. The people who endure violations of their human rights deserve the ability to converse with people in power, from political leaders to bystanders. More importantly, they deserve to be understood by their perpetrators. One of the most powerful tools of oppression is to deny or undermine the language people use to voice the injustice that they experience. I know that's pretty abstract, so here's an important example. The term racist. For the purposes of this podcast, the term racist is used to describe values, actions, and systems that perpetuate racial hierarchy. And though racist is often received to be very personal and very visceral, many scholars emphasize the term as an identifier. You'll hear from one of those scholars today. Identification is merely the first step but it's an important one nonetheless. There's actually another complicated set of terms that I think we should unpack. Southern Methodist University. If we are to understand SMU's relationship with race today, we must go back to the racist ideas that informed our founding. And those racist ideas continue to permeate our campus, And the proof is in our name. As I'm talking about the origins of our university through a racial justice lens, I would be remiss if I didn't start at the very beginning, acknowledging the indigenous people who preceded Dallas. There is a general consensus that there is no single tribe that claims ancestral land on SMU's grounds, but that's not to say that indigenous people weren't here. Dallas Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation report that the land that is now North Texas was sacred to the Caddo people, Wichita, Kiowa, and the Comanche. In the 1840s, British colonists carried out the forced removal and genocide of Native Americans, including John Neely Bryan, credited as the founder of Dallas, as well as General Edward Tarrant, John Denton, and John Reagan. Do those names sound familiar? Each of these men have counties named after them. Tarrant, Denton, Reagan County. The land that became Highland Park was enriched by African enslaved people. The Carruth family were among the most prominent enslavers in Dallas. Yes, as in Carruth Auditorium, Carruth Hall. The Carruth family that gifted the Methodist Episcopal Church South attractive land that became Southern Methodist University. Methodist Episcopal Church South. Some of those words sound a little familiar. This is the interesting part about our nation, about any institution or organization. How you start a thing is sometimes even more important than how you end a thing. Well, the institution of SMU was created out of racism. 
That's the voice of Ray Jordan. He's a former Perkins student, and he leads SMU's annual civil rights pilgrimage. The Methodist church split in the 19th century over slavery. And when they split over slavery, it created a Methodist church north and a Methodist church south. So John Wesley founded the Methodist church, and he published a treatise where he expressly condemned the enslavement of Africans. He said that it was directly oppositional to the church's pillars of liberty and equality. So in 1784, there were national documents that were distributed that all aligned with Wesley's values that he laid out. However, Wesley's views lost salience in the South. The Methodist Church made attempts to remedy that issue by distributing different documents across the North and South in 1804. So the Northern version included John Wesley's condemnation of slavery, and the Southern version didn't. So protecting the institution of slavery became non-negotiable. Vanderbilt was a Methodist institution. It was founded to be. But the conservatives of the Methodist Church South became biblical fundamentalists. And so they went into Vanderbilt and created a theological litmus test for their professors. Do you literally believe that this Bible story is real? Do you literally believe that these things happened as just as they're stated in this in biblical story? The professors and other faculty and whatnot at Vanderbilt were appalled. What happened to academic freedom? What ha why are we being given a religious test just to do our, our secular job? According to the New World Encyclopedia, tensions erupted when the church sought to control who could be a member of Vanderbilt's faculty and board of trustees. A lawsuit arose after non-clergy board members tried to limit representation of Southern Methodist bishops. Ultimately, the courts found that the church didn't have the authority to challenge this decision. And so the Methodist church now was left without a university in the Southern part of the U.S. And they certainly weren't going to send their children to the North, to those liberal places, teaching them that slavery was bad. Oh, no, no, no. The idea was we need a Methodist university in the South. Methodist University South. So what did they create? A Southern Methodist University. That's how we got our name. We were formed out of racism. And because we were formed out of racism, that is now baked into the system. And now just as intentional as the naming of the university to declare we are of the South, meaning we are of slavery and we are racist, <laughs> just as intentional as it was created, we have to be as, if not more intentional in deconstructing those systems. And so that's why our system has particularly had a difficult time saying no to racism. Southern Methodist University. Not quite the UT naming story, is it? But make no mistake, Southern Methodism continues to shape our world, our school, and every person that passes through our campus. Southern Methodism is inextricably tied to the maintenance of white supremacy. As a result, Southern Methodist University is inextricably tied to the maintenance of white supremacy. 
It's more than just some words. Every time we name our school, we're invoking that history. As Professor Jordan said, our founder set an intention to align with the racist values of Southern Methodism in 1911. Though the meaning of Southern and Methodist and even University have changed, we're implicated in our founder's vision. I'll say that again. We're implicated in our founder's vision. Southern Methodist University. Another set of shared language. But what does that actually mean? What do we do about it? Maybe our name needs to change to reflect our contemporary values. Maybe Southern Methodist University is a relic, a monument to our racist origins that we have an obligation to critically engage with. Maybe we should seek to understand the new meaning that Southern Methodist University takes on in the context of 2021. Maybe it's just not that important. I felt trapped when I discovered the history of Southern Methodist University's name. I couldn't just opt out of everything I learned. Southern Methodist University will be on my diploma, my resume, the cliff notes of my life. But it's important to note that learning our history gives us agency. We don't have to tuck the unknown origins of our name under an acronym. Instead, I get to choose how I proceed, and now so do you. Now let's get down to it. The early history of SMU. This podcast is about the history of SMU through a racial justice lens, but in reality, there isn't much documented about different races interacting with SMU in the early days. So I'm just gonna give you a quick survey. There's a pamphlet, The Latina and Latino History of SMU, that noted that a few students with Spanish surnames enrolled at SMU in its earliest days. A.R. Rodriguez, Anastasio Rodriguez, and Santiago Gomez each enrolled within a year of the school's opening, though none of them graduated. The pamphlet notes that economically privileged Mexican-Americans had access to, quote, socially elevated places across the country. Accordingly, before 1950, our interracial interactions within the SMU community were with Hispanic and Latinx identifying students. But aside from that, our early interactions barely existed. That's not to say that SMU didn't interact with race at all. For starters, we had a history of hosting minstrel performances, white actors painting their face black and putting on singing and comedy acts. There's also an annual event that was put on in our early days called the Kill Care Carnival. Though there wasn't anything explicitly racial in the promotion, the community festival vibes and the KKK initials made it pretty clear that the Klan held a comfortable space on our campus. And if it wasn't clear enough, according to a D Magazine article, our third university president, Charles Seligman, said, quote, if this situation is such that a Ku Klux Klan is justified in Dallas, then it is a good thing, 
unquote. If you go to the quad surrounding Perkins Chapel today, you can still find Seligman Hall. All of this to say, it's hard to define where all of this started and ended, and I consider this a testament of how immersed SMU could be in the culture of racism. There wasn't a formal public response that shut down minstrel shows or the KKK's present at SMU based on what I've examined. It just wasn't easy to mark time in these early years. Here's Professor Jordan. We've had our, our trouble with race, and I believe it's because the beginning of our university dictated that we be a place that was comfortable for racists. And it's taken us now over 100 years now of having to undo some of that, and we still got some work to do. Despite everything that you've learned about the Methodist Church in the past few minutes, Perkins School of Theology was probably the greatest site of anti-racist resistance at SMU, particularly as we started welcoming Black students. In fact, Perkins initiated desegregation in 1950, 14 years before the first Black undergraduate enrolled. I'll tell you about that in another episode. So by 1964, there had been some sparse groundwork of racial justice laid at SMU. This is the year that some undergraduates initially extended an invitation for Dr. King to speak on campus. By then, the Northern and Southern segments of the Methodist Church had long since reunited, and Perkins had made some meaningful progress on desegregation. Some of Perkins' Black students had gone on to become community leaders that were well attuned to the civil rights movement, both nationally and locally. In fact, many Perkins students marched at Selma to protest police brutality and voter suppression in 1965. The Daily Campus reports that they traveled to Alabama at the personal invitation of Dr. King. And that was all very necessary and needed information after all that we learned before. But now, let's ask the question. What was Dallas's relationship with race at the time? I asked Dallas civil rights icon, Dr. Reverend Zan Wesley Holmes. Some more context for Dallas's racial justice atmosphere at the time. So can you tell me about that? Yeah, let me tell you a story. When I first came to Dallas, my wife and I rented a little room in South Dallas. And one day as I was studying, I heard a loud, loud crash upon the freeway. And I saw people running past my, the house where I was living up to the freeway uh, because there was an accident up there. So I decided that I would go up and find out what was going on for myself. When I got up there to the top of that freeway, there was a black man who had been hit by an automobile, lying on the side of the freeway, bleeding very profusely. There were two white policemen who were there, but they were just standing there. There were two ambulance drivers who were there and they were just standing there. And I could not understand why they were just standing there. And I turned to both of them, I said, why don't y'all do something to help this man? Uh, 
And uh, I was informed by both the ambulance people and the police, but they said they were waiting for the ambulance from Black and Clark to come and minister to this man. Now, during that time, Black and Clark evidently had the contract for the Black community. And so while we were there waiting on Black and Clark, that man died. And I noticed, I looked in the eyes of the two white policemen, the two white ambulance drivers, I could see they were, they were really confused and troubled by that. Maybe they wanted to do something, but they were bound. I said, and I was, I, I was helpless. And I said, all of us were bound by that deadly disease called racism. But I also said to myself on that occasion, I said, now, if what I learned out at Perkins doesn't have anything to do with this, I don't need to be there. Dr. Holmes attended Perkins School of Theology in 1956. And while he emphasizes the stark consequences of racism, he also emphasizes that Dallas saw a legitimate struggle for racial justice. A lot of people said the civil rights movement skipped over Dallas. That's not true. That movement was alive and there were people in Dallas, black, white, other people who joined us, but black folks were very, very much involved in the struggle for justice and, and in support of, of Dr. King. I was brought up to see the civil rights movement, like Rosa sat down, Dr. King stood up, and then racism ended. So we're, we weren't trained to see this careful, methodical organization mm -hmm. that made it possible for all of this to happen. So this idea that Dallas didn't go through a civil rights movement if white people weren't at the very, very front line is an issue. It's a huge issue. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, they're, they're saying that, yeah, Dallas they, they didn't have the civil rights movement in Dallas, but that's not true. We we fought against racism, and uh, I mean there were people who literally, you know, gave their lives, just suffered, sacrificed. It, it was real. It was real. It was very real. Dr. Holmes served as a Dallas City Council member in the 60s, and he witnessed the fight against employment and housing discrimination. He told me he's seen it all. He also noted that much of Dallas's civil rights history was marked by white leadership's desire to suppress riots and shake their reputation as a racist city. President Kennedy's 1963 assassination didn't do much for our image. I want to tell you something. Dallas, Texas is, is, is sensitive about this image in, in the world. A lot of, lot of, lot of changes, progressive changes were made because we were trying, we wanted to let the world know that the, the, that, that assassination does not say who we are as, as a city. I also spoke to Rene Martinez, a Mexican-American leader who helped shape the desegregation of Dallas ISD schools. He attended SMU during Dr. King's visit, and he had a slightly different take. The Black leaders, from my understanding, uh, had an accommodation role. Uh, they weren't told what to do, but in a certain way, they were told, this is your role. 
and don't get out of this lane from my understanding later because later I got really involved with the citizens council with black church leaders jewish leaders they had to they had to play the game within that context right that is the context in which john hill then president of smu student association rescinded dr king's initial 1964 invite in a daily campus article he noted that dr king's visit would be disruptive to dallas's civil rights efforts he cited protests from black leaders but when i asked dr holmes about hill's assertions he was pretty skeptical well i've heard that the black dallas did not want dr king to come you know the first two occasions that he came he was brought by a black church and i was the second one that was what they called a sunday convention of the black baptist convention brought him in and he filled up the auditorium downtown i was there all of this to say Dr. King didn't end up speaking at SMU in 1964. Instead, our student body vice president Bert Moore re-extended an invitation to Dr. King in 1966. I asked Rene Martinez about campus attitudes towards attitudes Dr. King towards at that Dr. time. Luther King on campus prior to his arrival. I don't think there was a lot of student uh, activism on campus. uh Edison whatever color there weren't enough blacks there weren't enough hispanics i would dare say there was very few uh anglo liberal students in in uh, in the student body at all ultimately the fateful day arrived on march 17th 1966 dr martin luther king jr spoke to a standing room only crowd at mcfarland auditorium Rene shares what he remembers. Well, I remember kind of vividly Jerry Lavias and I talking about it. We're going to go. We're going to go. Jerry Lavias was the second black undergraduate student and the first black football player to integrate the Southwestern Conference. I wouldn't forget and that then, name if I were you. I I remember telling Jerry, I want to sit up close in front. And he said, "No, no, no, no." We need to sit in the back. And I said, "Why? I, w- I want to be able to see him." He said, "Hey, man, we sit in the back. We're going to be the first ones out of there if something happens. <laughs> the door's right next to us on that auditorium. We're out of here." And and then of course when we did sit in the back, then when we walked up and saw those guys protesting, you know, boy, that was the first, you know, flash. Oh my God. I don't know if this is going to and maybe that that kind of blocked my my memory and stuff you know uh I'd never seen the Ku Klux Klan before uh, I'd read about them I'd heard about them but then there they are with their hoods and 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 picketing out in front on the steps in the parliament I was like wow I remember Dr. King you know speaking I I remember the uh, auditorium was full. Uh you know for an event like that, I would have thought you would have had an entourage of black leaders, black preachers. I didn't see anybody there that other than classmates of mine. And uh as soon as the speech ended, you know, it was like I want to get out of here. 
you know. <laughs> I don't know what those guys outside are going to do. It was kind of like a fog. It was just like you go in there, sit down, you're looking over your shoulder, and you read. Uh, so it, it had kind of a chilling effect. To be sure, Dr. King's visit was a civil rights victory, an incredible win in our school's history, a moment where the pages of SMU's history and America's history collided for a day. But it wasn't a straightforward win. In every victory our school faces in our journey to Dr. King's Good Society, we have to hold space for everything it took to bring us here. But that's enough doom from me. Here's the man himself, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. speaking to a standing room only crowd on March 17th, 1966. There are some things in our nation and the world which I'm proud to be maladjusted, which I hope all men of goodwill will be maladjusted until the good society is realized. I never intend to adjust myself to segregation and discrimination. I never intend to become adjusted to religious bigotry. I never intend to adjust myself to economic conditions that will take necessities from the many to give luxuries to the few, leaving millions of people smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society. I never intend to adjust myself to the madness of militarism the self-defeating effects of physical violence, it may well be that our whole world is in need of the formation of a new organization, the International Association for the Advancement of Creative Maladjustment. Men and women who will be as maladjusted as the prophet Amos, who in the midst of the injustices of his day could cry in words that echo across the centuries, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream, maladjusted as Abraham Lincoln, who had the vision to see that this nation could not survive half slave and half free, as maladjusted as that great Virginian Thomas Jefferson, who in the midst of an age amazingly adjusted to slavery, could scratch across the pages of history words lifted to cosmic proportions, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, as maladjusted as Jesus Christ, who could say to the men and women around the Galilean hills, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, pray for them that despitefully use you. And through such maladjustment, we will be able to emerge from the bleak and desolate midnight of man's inhumanity to man and to the bright and glittering daybreak of freedom and justice. Throughout this podcast, we will plunge into the darkness of bleak and desolate midnight of man's inhumanity to man. You will get angry. You will feel hopeless. You'll wish you knew earlier. But above all, I urge you to remember that this podcast only scratches the surface. I urge you to keep questioning your surroundings and how they came to be. 
I urge you to lean into the discomfort and learn the implications our history has on yourself and your peers. Together, let's investigate what it takes to carry our school into Dr. King's good society.